little quiz for you to begin with. It's kind of a choice. Which one of these would you rather be? Maybe it would be another way of saying, which would you rather be called? Would you rather be open-minded or narrow-minded? If somebody's going to say of you, wow, he or she is very open-minded, or he or she is very narrow-minded. Now, I'm not going to take a poll. You can answer that question yourself, whether you want to be open-minded or narrow-minded. I hope all of you probably, I don't know, I wouldn't say I hope, but I would say that most of us probably know what the answer should be. We'd probably say, well, we ought to be open-minded. But is it always a good idea to be open-minded? My grandpa told me a long time ago, you can be so open-minded that everything just falls right through it. Nothing hangs in there. Personally, I am not sure whether it's really a good thing for Christians to be all that open-minded. And the reason I say it is because of this. Where God has spoken... His truth is not up for debate. We are not voting on what God's Word says. Now, for example, we believe it that Jesus meant it when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We believe that. That's true. So we kind of need to face it that Christians are narrow-minded. And Christians really ought to be narrow-minded when it comes to the truth of God. We believe that God has spoken in His Word, and His Word is to be obeyed. But writing to this church at Pergamum, he confronts a congregation that had become far too open-minded. And we need to hear what he has to say, because quite honestly, many churches today find themselves in the same position. They have become far too open-minded. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christ followers or who call themselves Bible-believing people also need to hear this. I also think this is probably not a bad message to talk about and speak about on Father's Day because I think fathers and mothers, we're not going to leave you out of it, but parents have a right, indeed I would say a command, to teach their children to take the hard right against the easy wrongs. To teach them that what the Bible says is the clear word of God and is meant to be followed no matter what anybody else thinks. There are five things I, I want to share from God's Word this morning, this little section here. and You don't have a written out outline, but I actually do have an outline on the screen, I think. But the first thing is that no church can live on its past. By the way, Jimmy's not preaching this morning. Uh, it's me. Uh, I, I actually am here. But, you know, the church at Pergamum had a great heritage. Is there a next slide come up there, or did I... No, you know what I think I did? I, I made a copy of it, and I, I got the old copy, so this may be completely wrong. That's okay. You know, when you change horses, Jimmy, <laughs> sometimes in the middle of the stream, you know, sometimes you lose something. We lost the outline. But my, my first point is simply this. No church can live on its past. 
week or so ago, I walked by outside where the cornerstone is, and I realized that this church building is going to be 45 years old, I think, come March. You know, we're going to be closing in pretty soon on about 95 years as a congregation here. That's a good godly heritage. The church at Pergamum also had a good godly heritage. And during the days of intense persecution, a man from their church named Antipas paid the ultimate price for standing the ground. Let me read again a verse that Sue read to you before, verse 13. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Now, who is Antipas? Well, the answer is, I don't know. It's because Antipas, <laughs> we don't know anything more about him than what is said here in the book of Revelation. But what matters here is that Jesus knows his name and knows that he would not give in to the pressure around him. And even though Antipas is forgotten here on earth, he's not forgiven in heaven. And we can say that about a whole lot of brave martyrs. You know, we know martyrs like Stephen. We know, uh, we know martyrs uh, like Polycarp, who we talked about a week or two ago. But by and large, many people who have died on account of their faith, we don't know who they are. Their names are not written down. Their names are not celebrated. But they're known in heaven. But here's the question about the heritage. Was the church at Pergamum guilty of honoring Antipas while neglecting to follow his example? Do we do the same? Do we remember the good old days? Do we remember our heritage? And we remember those people who have gone on before us, but we fail to follow what it was they did. We can't live on our heritage forever. Here's the second thing I want to tell you. That's that no church can live on courage alone. And we should not miss these really good words here of Jesus. He says in verse 13, I know where you live. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That God would say, I know where you live. And by the way, you don't need to give me the address of First Lutheran Church. I know where you guys are. You don't need to tell me where you live personally. God says, Gail, I know where you live. I know where you live. But then he adds this really pretty scary thing. It says, where Satan has his throne. Any of you live next to Satan's throne? You might say, not to my knowledge. Or maybe you'd say, well, I've always wondered about my neighbors. And he goes on to say, yet you remain true to my name. Now, I don't have this map up here today, I don't think. But if you continue around the map I showed in the last couple of weeks, it was about 65 miles north of Smyrna that we talked about last week. It went from Ephesus to Smyrna, now up to Pergamum. There was a great big university in Pergamum. There was a library there that they said had nearly 200 250,000 books in it. And it was the capital city of what is called Asia Minor. It was filled with beautiful palaces and it was full of pagan temples. And taking the center stage was a massive altar that was built for Zeus, the god of all gods. And I should say the little g god of all little g gods. Uh, Pergamum was also known for this temple 
that was built in honor of Asclepius, a pagan god of healing. They felt as if you went to wherever Asclepius was and you touched certain things that you would be healed. Pergamum had this toxic mix of political power, uh, pagan ritual, Greek philosophy, all mixed up with Caesar worship on top of it, and just like the folks in Smyrna were asked to do every year, at least once a year, everyone in the city was asked to offer incense. Well, they weren't asked. They were commanded to offer incense and declare Caesar is Lord. Now, I think about that today. Can you imagine if once a year we all had to offer up some incense and say the president is the Lord? Well, you know, no Christian can do that in good conscience. And so the stage here was really set for a whole lot of conflict. Jesus said Satan had his throne in that town. He means that Satan found a place to live where he could exercise his diabolical influence over an entire region. And through some sort of combination, as you read early church history, this town had this weird mix of idol worship, and sexual pleasure. Satan held sway over this city. Now, this may come as a surprise to some of you who don't give much thought about Satan, but Satan still has his thrones today. Uh, I, I know of a city where, actually, I, I won't mention, but a place where I used to preach that it was said that there were four witches' covens that operated on the four corners of that city that prayed against the churches in that town. In one other place where I have preached in the past, there was a list that was found after the police had broken up what amounted to be kind of satanic worship and it had a hit list on it of places and things that they were praying against, one of which was the big Christian radio station in town, but also on that list was a church that I was pretty familiar with. Stuff like that happens. Missionaries today know exactly what I'm talking about. Missionaries who've been to Africa, who've been to India, uh, people who have been in some third world countries know full well that there are cities, indeed entire cities, that are clothed in spiritual darkness they are so resistant to the light of the gospel that any advance of the gospel meets with nothing but fierce resistance. Satan still holds sway in a number of places. Yeah, but we don't need to think of remote areas, folks. You don't need to go to Nigeria or places like that to find places that are held in demonic bondage. You know, we're much more likely today to find Satan's throne in places of cultural influence. We're more likely today to find Satan exerting great influence in the great universities of this land. We're even apt to find it in the seats of political power, find it in the halls of commerce and great religious centers where prayers are offered many times a day, but where Jesus is not to be found. Now, in all of that, it is to the credit of this church at Pergamum that despite this widespread paganism, they had established a foothold in the shadow of Satan's 
throne. Always reminds me of some guy who said he wanted to open up a mission at Hell's Gate. He'd be armed with water pistols and attacking hell. He wanted to be that good. But they, they had an outpost here. And all I'm really saying is it was not easy to be a Christian in Pergamum. Now, whether you believe it or not today, folks, it's not easy to be a Christian in the great cities of Europe today. It is not easy to be a Christian in some of the great universities here in America. It is not easy today to be a Christian in parts of the Muslim world. And if there's not downright opposition to Christians in the world today, there's a lot of subtle pressure to keep quiet about Jesus. And there is a great big battle that's going on today. And again, I say whether you recognize it or not, between the God of this world and the God of the Bible. And in that battle, Pergamum had not yet yielded ground. And that's why Jesus praised them. You're in the seat, the throne of Satan, but you're, you're hanging on. But you may remember, he says, but this I have against you. Well, that's my third point I'd make, and that is that no church, no church can live with error in its midst. Listen again how Jesus points out their great weakness. He said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Did you catch the phrase that was repeated twice? It really is their problem. You have people who hold. That little phrase, you have people who hold. I mean, we see in those, those few words the weakness of an otherwise brave congregation. A great battle is going on between the God of this world and the God of the Bible, but the problem was this church refused to practice what we might call today church discipline. In other words, in the name of misguided love, they refused to throw out people who believed in the teachings of Balaam. They refused to get rid of the people who followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There were some people in that church, evidently, who advocated a very loose doctrine and even looser morality. Now, I get to thinking about this. This wasn't First Lutheran Church of Pergamum. But, you know, this was the first church of Pergamum. This is kind of what they were, this is kind of what was going on in the church. They were saying, look, we preach the old doctrines of the faith. The doctrines handed down to us from the days of the apostles. But if you don't agree with what we're teaching here at First Church of Pergamum, you, we still have room for you here in our fellowship. If you disagree with us about idol worship, uh, that's okay. You can still be counted among us. And, and if you frequent those temple prostitutes, well, we really don't like that very much. We kind of frown on that, but you're still going to find a happy welcome here at First Church of Pergamum. And, and if you don't like the preaching here about heaven or hell or about sin, well, that's okay. You don't need to listen to him. You can still be part of this congregation. Now, I don't know of very many churches that 
don't kind of like the concept of the church of the open door. In other words, you're all welcome at First Lutheran Church. You're all welcome at First Baptist. You're all welcome at whatever. I think most churches kind of like to have that open door where people feel welcome. You know, come one, come all, come just as you are. But, like I say, there's always a but. When that attitude is pressed too far, the church can end up with a weird brew, if you will, of truth and error. It can end up with purity and impurity. And sooner or later, evil spreads so much so that sin is no longer very sinful. Now, we are watching this happen right now, friends. If you've got your eyes open to the news at all, we're seeing this unfold in our country today. There is a great cultural shift surrounding what real marriage is. You notice that? The simple truth of the matter is that until very recently, the Christian church in all of its branches stood against same-sex unions. We have had a 2,000-plus year track record of consistency based on what the Bible clearly teaches. But guess what? Today, in churches across America that call themselves Christian, and even in some denominations that call themselves Lutheran, we're suddenly not so sure. Let me describe what's happened here. Stage one. A church takes a stand in favor of traditional marriage, you know, between a man and a woman. After all, God created them Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. But then comes stage number two. The church starts receiving public ridicule for its stand. Stage three, some members in church get a little bit uncomfortable with the negative publicity about the stand the church has taken. In stage four, the church begins to kind of de-emphasize its position so as to not offend people who are try they're trying to reach with the gospel. And in some cases... They go so far as trying to get their pastor to start talking about all that offensive stuff. You don't think that's happened? I've already had it happen to me. I had a person come to me up one day at the door and said, I preached on, on Life Sunday, abortion, euthanasia, right to life. And a person came to the door and said to me, oh, pastor, what a wonderful message today. You're never going to preach about gambling, are you? Guess what I preached on the next week? It happens. It happens. Well, stage five, some people then begin to wonder whether same-sex, I'm not going to call it marriage, but same-sex union is actually wrong. And then stage six, they suddenly start finding, quote, Christian writers or, quote, Christian pastors who defend same-sex unions as kind of morally neutral Stage seven, the church just simply shuts up about it. Does not preach or teach on the hard subjects anymore. We turn into the first church of Barney. I love you, you love me, we're one great big family. Yeah. 
Stage eight, the church welcomes people who have a different position on the issue. Now, the worst of it is this. While this is going on, most of the people in the congregation have no idea what just happened. They keep on attending. They keep on giving. They keep on supporting the church. And on one level, everybody remains faithful to the Bible. On another, it tolerates those who promote unbiblical and, yes, ungodly teaching. The end result is that a church receives both a commendation and a harsh warning from the Lord. There's one final thing that really needs to be added, and that's that no church ever stays in Pergamum forever. You don't stay in Pergamum forever. You don't live wishy-washy forever. You will ultimately find sound doctrine. You know, if you say, well, in sound doctrine we can harbor immorality, in the end, you're going to go one way or the other. You're not going to stay in the middle. And we're going to talk about wishy-washy in a couple of weeks, because there's one church where Jesus said, this I hold against you. If you'd have been hot or cold, I could have dealt with that, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. This is why you get number four. No church, I'm just saying, no church can live in a divided state forever. Verse 16 said, Repent therefore, oh, this next phrase gives me the shivers, otherwise I will come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Now, who's supposed to repent? It says repent. Well, certainly I think those false teachers, the teachers of Balaam, need to repent. The false teachers of the Nicolaitans have to repent because that's their only hope of escaping eternal damnation. But the greater call, I think, is to the church to repent of what we've done. I think it needs to be said to individual members, too, you know, particularly when we find ourselves harboring moral and spiritual compromise. What I'm saying is, friends, that sometimes in the name of open-mindedness, or another word I've kind of grown to hate, toleration, many churches kind of subtly compromise the gospel. And I really believe the Lord here is speaking more to the church than it is against false teachers. And Jesus said, look, if the church doesn't take a strong stand, he'll do it himself. And his judgment, guess what? God's judgment is always harsher than ours. I mean, the same Jesus who says what? Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, is the same Jesus who says, get away from me. Depart from me. I mean, it's a, it's a frightening thing when Jesus says, I will fight against you. Because guess what? You will lose every last time. Jesus is the undisputed heavyweight champ of all time. See, Jesus has the right to make that judgment because he judges with perfect judgment. That's what it means when it says Jesus will come and he'll do what? He will come and and he will judge because he has this sharp double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is kind of interesting. You know, a lot of times you get a sword that's... um, Dull on one side and really sharp on the other. And so if you're going to cut anybody, you've got to make sure you've got the right side turned. But in battle, these guys used to have these double-edged swords. 
so that they could just walk through with their sword and they'd swing them back and forth. It would cut both ways. There was no escaping damage when someone came with a double-edged sword. See, this speaks of God's unswerving, unsparing judgment. He sees through the facade of religiosity to the truth. He cuts away everything that's unnecessary. That's kind of tough stuff. That's why we need the last point. No church can live without a word of hope. Jesus' message ends up with a couple of absolutely wonderful promises for people who hang in there, who continue to take the hard right, if you will, against the easy wrongs, who stand on the word of God and are willing to take the blows for it, for people who are willing to overcome by faith. He he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. Maybe you saw that before you thought, I wonder what that is. I kind of know what manna is, but what's that hidden manna? And then he also says something pretty strange. He said, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. What? If I hang in there, take that stance on the Bible, someday I'm going to get hidden manna, and I'm going to get a white rock, got a new name on it. My name's no longer Gala. It's whatever's written on it. Is that what that means? Yep, (laughs) that's exactly what it means. Well, let let me explain a little bit of that to you. In contrast to the pagans who offered hidden mysteries, Jesus offers something to us that's much greater. I mean, hidden manna, it really means a personal communion with the Lord. You hang in there long enough, guess what? In heaven, you're going to get to hang out with Jesus. Sometimes we talk about communion where we have a foretaste of that great feast which is to come. Someday, what is hidden is going to be revealed to us. Jesus said, I am greater than all of the allurements of this world. Those who eat the living bread, those who drink the living water, will never hunger or thirst again. Because I'm going to give you this wonderful manna. Now, the white stone is interesting. I, I remember... Maybe Nancy will remember this too. We actually had a band play at our church that was called White Stone, White Stone Ministry. And uh, this is kind of where I learned what this meant. White Stone really stands for purity. But what is this new name that's written on this white stone? It says it's written on it known only to him who receives it. Well, it's kind of hard to answer that question. Uh, no one knows for certain because no one living has ever received the white stone with a new name on it. It's waiting for you up in heaven. Now, when I I was thinking about this, it's like there'd be a big stack of white stones when we get up to heaven someday, and and God is going to say, Gala, pick yours up. And Gala walks over. Like, how am I going to know? Well, you're going to know. And you pick it up, and you kind of, oh, wow, now I'm going to be called whatever. This text, though, offers us absolutely wonderful assurance. We're going, to know, we're going to be known by God. And when we get to heaven someday, God is going to call us by a name that only we will know. I mean, exactly how this can be, I, I can't say, but I'm just telling you, it's true. It's just what it says here in the Word. In that great day when we finally reach heaven, Jesus will both be Lord 
and he will also be our most trusted friend forever. I kind of think about it this way. Those of you who are married, you've, ever, you've been dating for a long time, do you have another name for that person other than their given name? And it might be a name that you wouldn't say out loud. <laughs> Nancy's scared right now that I'm, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> no. You know, people always say, do we call you pastor or doctor? What I say, you call me anything, just don't call me honey. Um, He's going to be our best friend. He's going, to, he's going to call us by a name. And it's going to be a great, wonderful, personal name. We're going to, so you know, we, here we come to the end of a rather solemn message from the Lord. I mean, his words need to be taken seriously. It's not enough just to be orthodox in theology. I, I know some people who say, well, we're Missouri Synod Lutheran. We have orthodox theology. Okay. Are you practicing it? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it says? Uh, well, uh, that's for the pastor to know. Ah. And it's not enough to have courage in the face of opposition. Well, I'm glad the pastor said what he said this morning. You'd never catch me saying it. You know, we must not tolerate in the church, in our lives whatever threatens the purity of our testimony to this world. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to do this perfectly, because every last one of us have fallen down on this. But it's a message, I think, that needs to be repeated. And it's a message that needs to be heeded as well if the church and if we are to be lighthouses in a dark world, if we're going to continue to be an oasis of healing to a broken and hurting world. Uh, We can't help sinners by saying sin is not sinful. I mean, how do you do that? How do you tell people that Jesus came to die for sinners when we don't count anything as sin anymore? Momentary indiscretions. I heard that one. What a joke that is. I committed an momentary indiscretion. No, you evil, wicked, bad, nasty person, you sinned. What? How dare you say I sinned? Well, sin is sin. Let's call it what it is. Jesus came to save sinners. But if a church no longer believes in sin, we got nothing to offer to anybody. We might as well just turn off the air conditioning, turn off the lights, lock the doors, and go home. And the next knock on the door may be Jesus who's coming. He said, you know, if you wouldn't deal with it, I'm here to deal with it. See, where sin is winked at, when sin is renamed or where we as a church or a denomination or we as individuals turn a blind eye to moral compromise to precisely the extent, to that extent, the church commits what I would call spiritual suicide. Truth never excuses sin. That's a hard message to preach today. You know why? Jimmy, I'm all thankful I had to do this. (laughs) 
And Jimmy knows I, I took stuff out of the message I gave him. <laughs> but Jimmy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in the corner here. You said, you can preach it, Pastor, and I will stand behind you. And I want you to know something, Jimmy. I really appreciate that. I appreciate knowing that there are people who are willing to stand behind when the word is preached. My prayer, you know, as I thought about this is, man, I I don't want to be so doggone harsh. And I don't want to seem to be judgmental or unkind because we still have the responsibility as believers, even as Jesus does, to do what? To hate the sin but love the sinner. I mean, people who would call us names and say, well, you're just judging a group of people or you're judging this or you're overlooking this, you know... We're, not, we're judging the sin. I hope we can learn to separate that. And at the same time, still love people. I have some really good friends who are, some, who are really big sinners. <laughs> and some of them belong to this church. All of them do, actually. Uh, we're all sinners. Uh, we can't go out and it, it, we still have to bring the love of God into this. It, it, but my prayer is, you know, even for myself, and I, I thought about this morning, it's just that, God help me to stand strong in the gospel in this age of moral compromise. I mean, God help these people stand strong in the age of moral compromise. I've been called narrow-minded more than once. I have a feeling I'll be called narrow-minded again. Maybe even over a lunch table today, huh? I take that as a compliment, just so you know. I hope you would, too. We need to be as narrow as God's truth is narrow and as broad as God's grace is broad. And he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand.